Let's talk about services now. Uh, services are important because a long time ago, like back in the 80s, and yeah, let's call it the 80s, like 83, right? The, the start of the GNU project. Open source empowers people, or free software as they termed it. Um, open source empowers people to own the stack, at least to some degree, right? Back in the 80s, no one really owned their stack. They, they were, everyone was in the same, in one of, you know, a couple of same boats. And those boats were proprietary operating systems. And that's just where everyone was. I mean, that's where we all were. Everyone had a proprietary operating system, which is weird to think about, right? Like there were literally no options. If you wanted to use a computer, you were using someone else's code. And and I would I would love to kind of, I don't know, somehow experience that knowing what I know now, which is not possible. But like how, you know, like First of all, I, I understand that, that it would have been complex to hack on an OS, you know? Like, there, there are so few people in the world at that, at that time who understood what, how it all fit together anyway that it just wouldn't, you know, you couldn't go in and, like, just change your operating system yourself. So, uh, you know, it's one of those, I think, that even if there had been the concept of open source at that time, and I guess I'm saying, if, if I'm talking about 83, there was. There was this fledgling project called the GNU Project, GNU's Not Unix, where they were, they were thinking, we should, we should make a system that we could modify and customize for our own purposes. And it took a long time to get anywhere near that. So anyway, that was, the big, that was a big deal. Open source started, and eventually we got to the point where we are, well, right now, where you can, you can own basically your entire stack and there might be like little exceptions and binary blobs and well what about that rom chip there and what about this thing here i get that we're not going to go down that path that that's that's taking it to the extreme i'm going to say for for functional everyday use we we own our stack on open source you own the code whether you look at the code or not right you own that code if a maintainer decides to stop developing that code doesn't matter you still have a copy of it you could do something with it. Maybe not yourself. Maybe you would have to hire someone to continue developing it or something. And, and then you'd have to, you know, you'd have to find that person and, and offer them amounts of money that would make them give up whatever they enjoy doing and work on your stupid project instead. It wouldn't be easy, but it w it's, that's the thing that, you, that it's possible, right? There, there is an, there's an out. You own your data and you own the computer, the physical device that you're running all of this stuff on. And and that's where we are right now. And that's a lot of it's a lot of independence given to each one of us. Like that's a that's a really big deal for people who who are doing important things on computers. And by important things, I don't necessarily mean globally important. I mean your life, you have things that you care about. Some of those things are on a computer. You own it. You own the computer, you own the OS, you own the data, you own the applications that you're running, and so on. And that's good. That's great. That's really neat. And recently, and by recently I mean, you know, like since 2010, so not recently recently, but recent, more recent than 83, I guess, um, the the concept of, of the internet as the computer, the network as the computer, the concept of the cloud has really kind of unsettled this concept that we've been living with for not very long. Um, certainly not since 83. What was Linux kernel was 92. So I guess some people have been living with this concept since 92. But I think a lot of people have not. I think a lot of us have 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 not been with Linux for for its entire lifespan, and so in in many ways it's you know like whenever you started with Linux, then you owned your own stack, and then not much later, people started talking about how the desktop was dead, the desktop was obsolete. Google was going to come out with an operating system that was just a web browser. Fat chance, right? Well, actually, they did. Of course, I'm I'm being sarcastic. A Chrome OS is is that. Uh, th this was a a wildly inaccurate um, anti prediction that I made. I, I was I was insistent at the time that Google was not going to come out with its own OS. I just thought that was a monumental task uh, for Q QA alone. Um, and then it turns out, of course, that that they they got around that. They just don't do QA. It's it's great. 
So anyway, the cloud has kind of shaken this to its core. You don't necessarily own the code that you're running. You don't own your data, and you don't own the computer that it's that, that all of that stuff is running on. So every time you, you any of us log into, I don't know, a, a, a proprietary or a third party, I'll say, uh, email provider, we're we're that's not nothing about that is is running. We're not running that. That's on someone else's computer. They've technically got that data. They've got copies of the data if they wanted. Uh, and, and we don't own the server that it's running on. Websites, we, we don't own that. Half a, a dozen web applications, web apps that you use every day probably don't own that. And so this is this was a, a major step back for open source in a way. And everyone, I mean, it wasn't, it's not surprising and it hasn't snuck up on us. And there's, we've been mitigating it. it it's, I, I feel like, the open source community has responded to this as promptly, I think, as anyone could. But it's a reality now, right? I mean, okay, yeah, maybe the desktop isn't dead as I sit in front of my desktop recording this episode. Maybe that was a little bit uh, hyperbolic for people to predict that we were all going to be using dumb terminals uh, by by now. But then again, maybe it's just, maybe that was hyperbolic in in the sense that it just hasn't happened yet. I mean, I, I do know people, and you probably know people, that that they honestly don't use applications outside of their, their internet browser, or, or the ones that they do are the exceptions and, and not the rule. And, I mean, I, I know people who are who are so who who do that so literally that I have been able to switch them to Linux because the reality of it was that they weren't using things out of the browser. And it became clear that spending any more money on a computer with a proprietary OS just didn't make sense. It just made more sense for them to get any computer that they could. I would install Linux on it, and then they would run things in the browser like they were doing already. I mean, that's happened. Not once. It's happened a couple to a couple of people that I know. I've been able to just get them onto Linux. I mean, I, I don't say that as if though it's some kind of success story because it's I don't know that it is at this point, right? And and that's that's the thing, right? At this point, if if everyone's running everything on the network on the cloud, then does it really matter what operating system they're using? I mean, what's the key component here anymore? Uh, the, where they go to configure their sound input and output? Like, I mean, what, what interaction with the operating system does a normal person have if everything they do is on the cloud? Of course, I mean, in reality, I don't, I don't know, I don't know personally anyone who literally just runs stuff on the cloud. Like, I don't know those people. I, I, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying in my life, there's always that exception. It's like 98% of activity in the browser. And then there's that one or two couple of applications that they need running on the OS. But it's pretty severe. It's a, it's a, it's a big split. And that is an environment that should be concerning to someone who values open source. But then again, why? Why should it be concerning? I mean, yes, it's different, but let's be rational here. Let's look at it objectively. Different? Maybe it's better. Maybe it's just different. Maybe it's a choice that you make. I could run this on the cloud, or I could run it locally. How do I feel personally today? Oh, I'll run it locally and, 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 and keep my stuff off the cloud. I'll run it on the cloud because that's more convenient for me. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. For some people, the the reality of not having to maintain a device is a huge benefit. The fact that they don't have to store their, their data and make sure that they're backing it up every day because they actually do care about it, see, ha, let, ha, handing that control over to someone else is a value add to a lot of people. And that's really hard for someone like probably you, dear listener, and certainly me. We, we like to tinker. We like to maintain our computers. We like to optimize. We like to understand why it's not running as fast as it could, or we understand, we, we, we want to understand how to make it better or, or change something, make it more convenient, script something, automate something. There are people out there who don't care about those things. And if you tell them, oh, the cloud's really dangerous because you don't own the application, you don't own uh, your data, and you can't configure anything, most of those things 
are seen as benefits to some people. What? I don't have to own, I don't have to maintain the application. I never have to update anything ever again. That sounds like a dream. I don't have to worry about losing my files because I'm not an organized person and I just throw everything on my desktop and then delete everything off my desktop every two years because it gets so cluttered and then I wonder where all my stuff is. This is great. I can just keep it on the cloud and they'll just store it forever. Like all of these promises that may actually have a bunch of different caveats or they may not, but all of those promises sometimes feel like features to a a large number of people. So that's not always something that you can sort of argue against when you're saying, oh, the cloud isn't so good. There are problems with the cloud. Well, there might be, but to some people, those problems look really great. The AGPL, the Afero, the GNU uh, public, general public license from GNU, Afero, um, has done a lot to to protect people from sort of becoming dependent on a cloud service that they cannot then replicate themselves. The Afero, the, the AGPL, ensures that the code that you are experiencing on, on a web app is available to you. And so should you decide that whoever is running that web app has become unreliable or maybe they're they're shutting down their site or they're not updating fast enough for you or whatever or you're just not sure what kind of code is is in that app and you want to see it the agpl ensures that you have access to that and that's huge that's a big deal it, it's one part of the, the the equation right and i'm saying that the equation that we need to really think about here is the source code your data and the, the hardware. So the AGPL solves the, the first, the, the source code. Source code availability is guaranteed by the AGPL. So that's a hugely important license right now. And, and certainly other licenses are, are great as well. Like if something's Apache licensed or MIT licensed, whatever. All, all of those that guarantee availability of source code, those are hugely important licenses. I'm singling out the AGPL because I have a preference for the AGPL because it requires people who then develop that code to also contribute the changes back to sort of the original uh, developer, which I think is a, a an important social aspect to coding that um, apparently a lot of people don't care about so much anymore. So AGPL and other licenses that preserve or, or that, that ensure source code availability, I think is a big deal for for moving to the cloud if you are indeed moving to the cloud and i think we're at that i think at we're at the point right now where i think a lot of us whether we think of ourselves as having moved to the cloud i think a lot of us have moved to parts part of our workflows to the cloud as i say that i'm trying to calculate whether that's actually true but i mean i would be hard pressed i mean it's certainly at work but i mean that's not that's not really my that's not me that's that's the company's stuff you know i'll put their company's data wherever they want me to put it um but for my stuff if the cloud was not available i guess email really is about it for me to be perfectly honest no that's not true there's some video gaming and yeah and some tabletop gaming services that i use yeah no okay there we go yep um, so yeah, there there have been, there are, you know, we've, many of us, I dare say most of us, use publicly available services on the internet. And that's why I'm trying to use the term service. Because service, by any definition, is a thing being run for the benefit of others, or, or for use by others. And so obviously a service can be something that a cloud is running and making available to people. It could be something that you yourself are running and making available to your friends, it could be something that you're running at home and just making available just within your your four walls. So it's a service. And and many of us are using services. And and the 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 danger there is that we potentially do not have access to the code, to the data, and certainly to the platform itself. Now, of those three, I honestly believe that one of the most the probably I I want to say the most important, but I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's overstating it in this context. One of the most important things. I mean, there's only 3 to choose from. So, one of the most important things is the data aspect. 
because the data is the thing that makes it unique. When you're using a service, the, the service is the service, uh, and, and if you input something into it, then it will predictably spit something back out. But the unique things that, we, that we're using the service for, that's, that's why it exists. That's why we're using it. That's the purpose of the interaction. And so if you have even an AGPL application running online on a server, and you've opened your firewall port so everyone can use that service, then yes, it's, it's great that it's AGPL. It's great that people can grab the source code if they want it. But if, if they're feeding data into the service and they can't get the data sort of back out of it easily, I'm going to argue that the, the value of that web app to a lot of users, well, there wouldn't be as much value to that web app to a lot of users as something that's not openly licensed, but does provide easy access to data. Now, I don't know if the average person out there in the big wide world would agree with me or not, because I, I, I do feel kind of like a lot of people probably actually don't really think that far ahead. So that might seem, they might understand why that seems important, but would they give up a web app that they quite liked just because they don't have access to their own data? I, I, I don't, I, I can't see that happening. I mean, I don't know. Can can you? What's the um? What's the export process like for Facebook, for instance? Is there one? Can you go to like a screen in Facebook, and click uh, download all my stuff and get your, you know, twelve years of family photos and school photos and whatever other stuff people have put on Facebook? Can you get all the interactions, all the chat histories, like you know everything? Probably not. So I don't think the average person probably would give up their platform just because their data might not be truly theirs. Their data might go away if that service decided to shut down tomorrow. Now, as Twitter slowly falls apart, I do understand that a lot of people have gone into Twitter and exported all their data. Now, I don't know what that means. Does that mean all of the posts that they that they have put put into Twitter? And then, and then what do you do with that data once you have it? I don't know. So anyway, the data is important. I think it's probably one of the most important aspects of this. I don't know how many other people think that way, though. I think a lot of people just, I, I really think that a lot of people, if if Facebook went away tomorrow, they'd be really disappointed. But I, I don't know how actually, I, I, I think a lot of people just, especially with digital stuff, unfortunately, I think a lot of people have been trained that easy come easy go like sometimes you just lose all your stuff what start backing up no no it's better to just live life unaware that tomorrow all of your bits could be zeroed um but that's not the way that open source should be building open source the, the community shouldn't be building open source with that goal in mind right we, we we're striving for something a little bit smarter than that so i think with open source services, we want the availability of data, of, of code, source code, which is something that we can do through licensing, AGPL, MIT, Apache, whatever. And we want availability of data, which is, which is important and sometimes really, I think, hard. Because, like I said about the, the exporting, you know, Facebook and Twitter, like, what what do you export? What 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 are you on a on an online service? And I guess it it I guess it it depends. And it's probably, you know, it's certainly something that, that, that varies from application to application. Um, there's a, there's a tabletop game application that I use open source called Planar Ally, P-L-A-N-A-R, Planar Ally. And one of the things that it does is it sort of helps you draw the bounds of uh, of, a, of a sort of a board game of, a, of a, a battle map for an RPG or an exploration map for an RPG. And so basically you're drawing an SVG in this web application that then becomes barriers to sight and movement for the players on the other side of the of the virtual table. So exporting data from that application would probably look like really just can I please download the images that I've uploaded to provide the map and the SVG data that I've drawn to give the walls and doors and things like that substance. Now, interestingly, at the time of this recording, 
planar ally doesn't have that capability. So this is an interesting case in point. Uh, it's not actually what made me think of this discussion, but it, it's it's actually a really, really good example. And I, I'm loving planar ally, to be clear. I'm not critique, cri- criticizing it, but it, it is, you know, like if I'm going to spend hours and hours drawing maps and, and coming up with essentially, you know, no, no code, low code video game development in a way, surely I would want to be able to get that data in a format that I could then reuse. But then then the question is, and, and it's on their roadmap, by the way, so Planner Ally is aware of this. It's it's in development. It's it's working on it. Um, but but interestingly, that, that brings up the point of, well, okay, sure, there's this application, and there, I've been putting data into it. I can't get my data out right now. But when I can get my data out, what's the format? What's the right format? It's tricky. Um, and once again, like, if it's for me, Clatu then maybe the right format is just any format, any open standard format. And then the assumption is, if you want to reuse that somewhere else, then you do the conversion. But is there something better than that? Is is there some other format that other web apps of that kind would be able to understand? I don't know. I, I haven't looked into it, to be honest. I'm not sure if there's a sort of a de facto standard for that sort of thing. So data, it's important. Access to the source code really important. Access to the platform can be important because if you think about it, if the platform itself goes away, then all of the other things go away. And if you as a user have no control over that, then do you own anything at all, really? Uh, Especially, I mean, thinking about sort of backing up, like if you got your data on on a website that you trust for use with some web service that you trust, and then overnight it goes away, when was the last time you did a backup of all your data? And, and that's a, a really... And, and how would you do that for all the different services that you use? If I'm using an email application there... I'm probably lucky because I'm maybe I'm checking email on my computer using Pop3, downloading all the messages. So I'm 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 performing the backup, or or really, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. I guess functionally it's a backup. I, I guess even if it was like IMAP where I'm copying files locally, that would be the backup. So in that case, that's happening. RSS feeds again. Yeah, you're kind of like, as long, assuming that the RSS feed delivers all of the content, you're 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 sort of automatically backing a thing up by interacting with it from its central location on the cloud, which I realize that's not central, probably it's distributed and, and load balanced and scalable and all that other good stuff. But you know what I mean? Like there's a cloud, that's why we call it a cloud. So we can say that place right there, it's not really right there, but it's, it's a big cloud. But what are you going to do? Like if you're, if you're using, yeah, planar ally for your gaming needs and, um, Mastodon for your, um, interactions with other people and matrix for chatting and all these other services, realistically, how do you back that data up? There's, there's not really a, an easy way to do that, right? There's no, there's no sense of making yet of making the cloud your data store origin and your local machine, the one that you're sitting at, to be the really the the backup computer. I mean, I, I do think that email and RSS has has is pretty close. Like that's that's kind of that's that's in the right ballpark because by interacting with it, you are also performing a backup. And the important distinction there potentially is, well, yeah, I think a, an important distinction there is that there are there's a client involved. There's a, a local client application that looks at just the data on the internet and, and pulls it down locally. That's an important thing to keep in mind. And it's why open services really, really need to be based on a protocol with lots of different potential clients such that you are able to, as the user, choose, do I want to just run this in an ephemeral web browser where I never actually touch the data? Or do I want to install the client application that synchronizes with that online store constantly, uh, the online storage uh, constantly so that I get all of that data locally? I, I, I imagine it would be a different, there would be different questions or different answers depending on the the service. Like Mastodon, goodness no, I wouldn't want a backup of all of that stuff 
at all. At least not right now. Personally, I don't want that. But do I want that for Planar Ally or for my email? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I would want. So I, I, it would definitely depend, which is important to, to realize, but it's also an important thing to, to enable users to be able to choose. We, we, we shouldn't make the choice for our users, right? We shouldn't say, well, no one's going to want to back up of this. This is just, this is just stuff that's meant to just go online and never be seen again anyway. Well, for some people, maybe they want that, or maybe they're not using it in the anticipated way, you know, the, the way that you anticipated. So the code needs to be available, the data needs to be available, and there's still that question of the hardware, right? And and Mastodon, for instance, uh, solves this in sort of like the, the uh, implied redundancy solution, I'll call it. It, it, in in other words, it is assumed that there will be enough people desiring to run Mastodon instances to meet the demand of all the people who want to be on Mastodon. That's the assumption. And should should the group of people willing to run Mastodon instances publicly, uh, open for public registration, fail to meet the demand of the people who want to be on Mastodon, then there's there would be theoretically a problem. And I mean... I think in a way there kind of was for like a, a day or two where so many people from Twitter were going to Mastodon that that sort of people had to figure out like, well, how many users can my instance withstand? How many people can I invite in before this becomes not maintainable for me? And there were questions and, and ideas popping up for a couple of days there where you know, ideas like, well, maybe just big public institutions, you know, like publicly funded institutions, I don't know, libraries, museums, uh, uh, whatever else there is, should be running like Mastodon instances. And, and who knows? I mean, why not extend that to be email servers and, and so on? You know, start to redistribute the internet, essentially, and make these services available to people. Now, the, the opportunity for mismanagement and, and that sort of thing is definitely is definitely there. But then again, the opportunity for mismanagement is here as well, where just random people are spinning up a, an instance, maybe, and people join, and then maybe they decide never to update, or maybe they decide it's too much work after all. I'm going to shut it down with no warning. You know, who knows? Like, there, there's opportunity for bad sysadmin throughout, which, again, is why the open source solution is kind of important. Because if you're on an instance, you're backing up your data ideally, maybe. Maybe you're using some kind of client that, that backs it up for you. Whatever, your configuration's backed up. You've got all that sorted, and then your instance goes away. Well, no worries, you can just spin up your own, in theory. Let's go take a coffee break, we'll come back, and we'll talk about that in theory part. I think I have five rather pointed solutions to the theory of not owning the hardware in a cloud-based world. I've got uh, coffee, and and not only do I have coffee, but I have the much-anticipated, at least by me, Sunshine Coffee. Sunshine Coffee is the name of the blend that I got from Flight Coffee. This is not a sponsored thing, by the way. I'm just talking about the coffee that I'm drinking. Uh, Sunshine, it's... um, it, they bill it as, uh, it tastes like strawberry, peach, and pavlova. Pavlova is a dessert that was invented by... New Zealand, and nobody else. Um, origins, Columbia, washed, something like that, I don't know. Uh, sun's out, mug's out, and we've got the perfect drop to pour into yours, into your mug. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, and, and so, so it's, it, it comes with this little trading card again. I don't know if these are actually trading cards, but they're, they're little cards with all the information you could ever want about the coffee on them, and it's just the most charming thing I've ever seen. And the coffee's actually quite good. I don't know that it tastes like pavlova and peach. It's not flavored coffee, to be clear. It is just coffee that they're claiming has sort of like 
the bouquet of, of strawberry and peach and I guess pavlova. I don't know what I forget. I, I did have a pavlova once. I had a slice of pavlova or something, um, but I don't remember what it tasted like. But uh, there there is that sort of bright pop of kind of like a strawberry, like you can see what they're getting at. Um, it's a it's a fairly light roast and it's got kind of got that I don't know I think of it as an open not open source just kind of I don't know an open sort of bright sort of aftertaste to it and it's it it is quite quite good and it is it's actually quite noticeable as well or I should I should say it's noticeable right now because I'm only like three cups in so I imagine luckily I have I have another i have the unity coffee or whatever i got from the uh the store as well so i'm going to kind of alternate to try to keep the flavors fresh but yeah you, you you know the taste buds they do acclimate to flavor after a while i find um with coffee so i do try to try to keep it try to keep the the taste buds guessing anyway if you're in new zealand and you have access to flight coffee i guess i do recommend the sunshine blend and the the significant thing here is that this is this is a summer blend it is limited time you can only get this coffee i don't know during the summer i guess so it's it's quite good i i'm i'm enjoying it and i finally got it in which was very exciting um okay so let's talk about some ideas around what we could do if we're all really really starting to use services online that we don't own the hardware to uh and possibly we don't own the well I'm going to assume that we own the source code. I'm assuming that we're talking about, at this point, we're talking about running open source software, just not on our local computer. It's on some other computer. And I'm going to assume that we're being disciplined enough in how we back up stuff that we feel confident that we own the data. And like I say, I don't think we're all out of the woods there yet. I really don't. I think open source users and developers need to really think about how that data is is kept. Who has ownership of that data? I mean, I realize that in theory, the user has ownership of the data. I'm just acknowledging that some people don't want to have to think about how they own their own data. And we've done that for years and years and years now, like decades. People have lived without backups for a very, very long time. And they're not going to start backing up now just because you're telling them, hey, you own that data. You should keep track of it. So something needs to be sort of, that needs to be addressed, I guess. And I personally, I think, as I've said before the coffee break, I think the most obvious a practical way to do it would be to make the cloud, to treat the cloud as the authoritative source of the data, which seems like a horrible idea. But what I'm saying is that we use client applications on the local side that essentially are, backs up your data without you having to think about it. And and it, that might be a little bit backwards because look, if I have my vacation photo and I'm posting it up to PixelFed, and then I'm using a, a client application to browse PixelFed, and I'm backing up my photo back down locally, then I've got two copies of that image, and why why would that be? But once again, maybe, I mean, it could just be like a, um, like a next cloud synchronization type of thing. Here's my PixelFed directory. If I put a picture in there, it gets put over here onto the internet, and now I've got my data in both places, and I don't really have to think about it because it's just there. And then if it appears on PixelFed because I posted it there through Nextcloud or from you know directly from my phone or whatever, then it's also going to get copied over to my computer because that's how it works. I don't know. Something like that. And yes, there could be overrides. People could turn those options off, but I I feel like I don't know. I would argue that it would it would you would want it to be opt out. Like by default, you're going to get backups of your data because you own that data and you own the application. But I mean, these are all just ideas anyway. So anyway, I've got five, five ideas, five, five things to consider when thinking about using online services, like how to manage that, how to make that happen in a way that it sort of works for you, depending on a lot of different requisites, requisites, requirements. Um, so one, is that you could form a collective. Doesn't have to be an official thing with a governance and uh, and and a bunch of elaborate contracts. I'm just saying. I mean, you know, you should have some kind of understanding. But but a collective. Now, me and Deep Geek and Lost in Bronx did this a long time ago. Uh, it's it's kind of I don't know. I I guess 
I don't know if Deep Geek and Lost in Bronx are actually, I think they still might have, it still might may, might be ongoing with them. Uh, for me, I, I kind of dropped out because I, I just it just wasn't fitting my workflow anymore. But um, for a really long time, it was really, really great. Uh, we called it Cray, C-R-A-Y, after the famous supercomputer. Um, and it was a... It was a server somewhere in the world, so we didn't actually own the hardware, but we rented the hardware between the three of us, so the price became relatively negligible. DeepGeek functionally was the sysadmin of the collective. I mean, I think I was supposed to have been doing some stuff, but I was working a low-paying job that overworked and and underpaid, that sort of thing, so I didn't really get that much of a chance to play around with too much stuff, and DeepGeek was really good at it anyway, so why not? Um, and, and we used services among, you know, the the three of us, we, we installed what we needed. We ran what we needed. We had gopher going and, and, um, did we have email? I don't think we had email. Did we have email? Yeah, I think we did have email, email and, um, various things. I don't remember what else, but it it was probably a, I'm certainly, uh, yeah, a web host, um, because it was uh, light HTTP or Hiawatha, I forget which one. But yeah, there were um, there were some really great services being run on that little box wherever it was in the world, and we each were responsible for our own backups. You know, you 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 had stuff on on the collective cloud. Well, you backed up the stuff on the collective cloud. It was just it was a it was a tiny you know three person collective uh with people with with similar interests and similar online requirements and it worked out really well now things have gotten a little bit more complex potentially now because you know when you when i'm talking about services in this context in the in my story in my collective cray story uh we or i'm talking about really just headless services things that that run on a server that you interface with primarily through a terminal or you know you upload something and then you look at it in a web browser that sort of thing it wasn't we weren't running complex web applications but that said web applications are getting easier and easier to run these days so i could still see forming a collective and saying that you know we'll each have access to podman and run what we need as a container or or you know we'll we'll virtualize some uh, a server for us or or whatever and 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 run run your own service on on you know like a, a full-blown web application so i i don't see i mean heck i think i ran own cloud on on there for a little while so yeah it's um it's something that's within reach now so that's that's option number one is is form a collective with some trusted friends you know come up with some kind of agreement it doesn't have to be a written agreement but it should be some kind of agreement so that everyone knows what to what to expect from the other person less is more i think having low expectations is is great um and, and that's what we tried to do with cray we tried to keep it keep it light don't expect really anything from each other because we were all busy people um and and we were just sort of online roommates for for years and it worked out really well i i imagine it could go poorly if you don't know who you're you're rooming with like that that could be a potential problem although ideally it wouldn't be because once again you would be um you'd all have access to sudo as needed and you would be backing up your own stuff your own configurations your own applications and if the platform ever goes away through negligence or because someone decides to take uh, their their raspberry pi and go home that's okay you've got all of your you've got all the access to the stuff that you need anyway you don't care doesn't matter now obviously there are privacy concerns as well you don't want to put your private keys and 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 other things on a server that you don't trust the other users of so you know all of that would be something to take into consideration you'd want probably an encrypted well you would want an encrypted you know if you didn't know the people encrypt everything and so on but i'm just saying a collective is an option that is a real real option two sponsor an admin. This is, I mean, in a way, it's what we did with Cray, ultimately, because DeepGeek really graciously became the, the, the collective's sysadmin. He, he was, he's very experienced at that sort of thing. And, and, you know, he, he just, a lot of the stuff kind of fell on him to do, and he did it. So I guess, in a way, we did that. But, but really what I mean by sponsor and admin is, is find a collective that already exists, essentially, and, 
there aren't that many, but then again, there are some. There's SDF, that's uh, Sierra Delta Foxtrot, or I guess you could also say something like Super Domain Fortress, which is a name that they used to throw around sometimes. Um, so SDF dot, I guess org probably. SDF is a uh, public access Unix server. It runs NetBSD. It's not a small-time operation. It's quite big. There's a bunch of steps that you have to go through to sort of get membership. I mean, you can get a free account really easily, but it's a, an account that you have to keep logging into every so often or else it goes away, and you have limited services, limited access to different you know services that they offer. You can pay something, some, some odd amount of money for like a lifetime membership so that your account never goes away, essentially. Uh, and then you can pay more to get more more and better access to more and better services. So you're sponsoring someone else to maintain the infrastructure that you possibly want to use. There's something else called uh, nixnet.services. That's N-I-X-N-E-T, nixnet.services, or service maybe. And and that's uh, just a random guy that I met online. And he's running a really cool little, I guess, a collective of sorts. Um, he does take donations, which if you're using his services, you might want to donate. Because again, I consider this sponsoring the, the your, your sysadmin. You are sponsoring someone else to do the thing that you didn't want to do, which is run the applications. Had this been on your desktop, you would have just downloaded the source code, compiled it, and run it. But it's not on your desktop, it's on someone else's machine. And so you're sponsoring them to download the source code, run it, and offer it to you. Of course, I mean, none of these, these services aren't, they're not, it's not fast food. You don't get to just tell the person, hey, I need this, make that happen, and, and so I can use it. You can certainly put in requests, uh, and, and they'll see about running the service for you, but it, it, it isn't a guarantee. These are, these are mostly, I, I hesitate to say hobbyists, because that makes it sound a little bit trivial. But, you know, they're, they're independent people. They're, they're running things themselves, and, and they will, you know, they're, they're doing what they think is best for their system, and, and for their users, for that matter. So those are the two that I know about, SDF and NixNet. There are certainly others out there, but those are the two that I'm, I've got personal experience with. Three, build your own cloud. You can do this. Um, I've done a Hacker Public Radio episode about this. Uh, you can run, for instance, Kubernetes on a Raspberry Pi cluster and then start up containers. I mean, I've done that. It's happened. It's a reality. So you do have to have a bunch of pies or, you know, some, some computers to, to create a cluster. Um, three is really the minimum. And, and that's why I say pies kind of make the most sense for that. Although, you know, pies are pies. So maybe you want something a little bit more powerful. It doesn't even have to be Kubernetes. You could just run the container. You can just take a computer, spare computer, install Linux as usual, and then just use Podman or Docker to run a container. It's completely, you don't need the orchestration layer. Uh, Podman does a, a, a fine job of, it's not really orchestrating, but I mean, it's, it's a fine little engine to run containers in. And it's, there's no daemon to run. It's, it's a daemonless uh, runtime. It's, it's, it's quite nice, Podman, if you've not tried it. Uh, Docker, you know, if, if, if you know that, then you could, you could use that as well. But um, Docker's a little bit more, a little bit more to set up than, than Podman. So Podman makes it really, really simple to just run applications that, that are in containers. And whether you love or hate the concept of containers, or, you know, running, running a little instance, an incomplete instance of Linux uh, on your Linux box, maybe that doesn't appeal to you, but it's definitely something that the cloud is using right now to help the cloud continue to scale. And it's not a bad technology to get to know. Uh, and it can make sometimes running applications easier than 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 running them otherwise. Uh, it's just it's a it's a different concept. It's a, it's a little bit more almost application centric. Of course, then you've got to you have to learn the the ways to tie things together within Podman, and that's not always easy. So there are complications there, but it is also an option. I mean, the other option is to not mess around with containers at all. And again, grab a computer, install Linux on it, and just run the application that you want, the web app, whatever it is. It's a Python app. If it's a 
PHP app, if it's a Node app, whatever it is, you run it on that computer just as you normally would. Now, realistically, I'm going to say, like, a lot of things right now are being delivered as containers, and so it's going to be easier to run it as a container than it is to to install the the Node app or the, the Python app and then run that server or whatever. So just take that into consideration. But either way, you can own the hardware, like literally own the hardware, poke a hole in your firewall, and suddenly you're de- delivering a web app to yourself or, or to a group of users if you want, and, and you own the whole stack again. The, the downside to that is that you're now back in charge, right? That's now you are running those applications. You are, you're the, you're the bottleneck as well as the, you know, you hold all the power, but if something goes wrong, you are also the, the person that you're going to have to blame, which can be painful sometimes. Four, sandstorm.io. I've never run Sandstorm myself, but I know people who have, and they love it, and I am really intrigued by it, and I keep meaning to try it, and I just, I have not yet gotten around to it, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna remedy that very soon. But yeah, sandstorm.io, if you go to, um, sandstorm.io, then it's, it's a, essentially, well, it tells, it it says it's a self-hostable web productivity suite, and in other words, it is a web app package manager. So it is a platform upon that you can self-host. It's sort of a, a control panel from which you can install applications, web applications. And I've seen people run all kinds of things on their Sandstorm instance that they themselves are hosting. So I guess in a way, this is a little bit of a hybrid it, it's kind of, or, or maybe it's just a, another way of looking at the option of, of standing up your own server and running applications either as applications or as containers or however you want to do that. Sandstorm, you would, you would ostensibly need to have the server, and then you would install Sandstorm on that server and run Sandstorm. And then you would use Sandstorm to run all of your different web apps. It's a really n- nice interface um, I've I've done the demo, but I've I've not self-hosted it. Um, and and it is it's what it says it is. It's a web it's a web app package manager. Which, you know, I mean, the limitations of a package manager apply. If if no one has has packaged the thing that you want to run, then you'll have to sort of package that yourself. And is that any easier than just running it on your own server yourself? Is Sandstorm then worth it? Who knows? It's up to you. You would want to take a look at it, see see what it offers. Um, but it is it's a really nice little app. It's a it's a really cool little control center. And I in my mind it it's kind of the the turnkey solution to running your own services. Like it makes you know a lot of the big services really really easy to run on your own on your server. And just as with something like like Nextcloud or or WordPress, it's really quite flexible as to what your options are here. You, you you can you could have a computer in your closet and run Sandstorm on it, or you could just rent some space on you know a virtual what is it VPS virtual private slice or whatever they're called, uh, virtual private server. Um, uh, from from some from any given host again now you're not owning your hardware but uh, you could rent a, a space and then just install sandstorm there in in a virtual or you know in in that environment potentially depends on what your your permissions are and so on but but there is some there's flexibility here and then once you've got sandstorm which is you know kind of the app once you've got that installed then you have access to all kinds of packages that that exist for Sandstorm. So, you know, things like Etherpad, Rocket Chat, EtherCalc, Draw, or uh, what is it? Uh, draw.io or Diagram.net, um, WeCan or Wecken, the, uh, the Kanban board, uh, DocuWiki, uh, and so on. So, you know, all, all kinds of different applications that as long as they're packaged for sandstorm you they're just it's one click install it's really really nice and and it 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 feels a lot like you know the uh the hosting options or the when when you have a web hosting and they have the what is it installatron the the one click you know application installer except you know how those often just have like really really outdated old php bulletin boards like and that's the extent of what they offer um, this offers a bunch more. Like, this has a lot of, like, you know, 
new stuff, like stuff that you might want to actually run and share with your friends and so on. So it's really a neat little platform, and and you can package up your own applications for it as well. So it's it it isn't it it it's not just an installatron. It is an open source platform, meaning that you can you can contribute to making it this little app store, this little marketplace, even better. And then five, uh, and finally, I guess is is just renting space somewhere and running the web applications and services that you want to run. And just keeping in mind that you don't own the hardware, you don't own the platform, you don't own maybe even the operating system running on that platform, depending on what it is. The cloud is such a sort of a, so many stacks are involved with, with clouds these days. I would, I would try to find something running OpenStack and then have something open source running on an open stack but you know cost is a concern and so who knows who knows what's out there so you can you can rent space on someone else's cloud and run your own services keeping in mind that you don't own that platform if it's, if it's a big cloud you you have some degree of certainty that it's going to be around for at least a good number of years and so you you back up your configs you back up your data and so on and you treat it as your own as your own platform because mostly it is at least you know two thirds of it is your own platform and that's an option as well. Why do we need any of these options? What what are we really safeguarding against? Well, I think all of the old arguments still apply. You know the the stuff about security and privacy and the ability to to partake in in the thing that you are you know sort of improve what you are running and share what you are running and all these other concepts. Are still applicable that that hasn't changed i think my interest in this right now at least is primarily that if the world is going to continue to move towards the cloud then open source needs to be ready for it we need to be ready for it in the sense that people are going to need the ability to own the platform we need to be able to own our data and our source code those three things i mean that i can think of off the top of my head there are probably other other issues to consider that I'm not thinking about. I don't know, infrastructure or protocols or APIs, all that stuff, you know, whatever. The, the things that I'm talking about, though, just off the top of my head, platform, source code for the app, and the data that you're putting into the app. Those are the three things that I'm thinking about. And I'm just thinking that open source needs to ensure we as a community we need to be sure that we are designing and sort of using our services with those things in mind because the i think the hardest part of that equation is the the physical component the part that says i want to own the actual box that it's running on i think that's the hard part because a lot of times you're not going to either because you can't afford it or because it just doesn't doesn't make sense for you or because you just don't want to, you don't want to be the maintainer of that thing, then you may be surrendering that that component. And I, th- I mean, a lot of us are surrendering that component. We don't run our own email servers by and large. So that has gone away. Like that that component is, we are fine writing that off. Is that good? What, what, could, what, what, is there a better system? Could we have designed our way around that? Some kind of communication system where you didn't have to run a big email server that that was um, that had every potential of of being either compromised or or spammed to death. I don't know. Maybe there probably is. There's probably something that we could have done differently there. Peer to peer. I mean, people have been trying to make more things peer to peer all the time. So there's probably a lot there that has sort of still gone sort of un not unexplored, but it hasn't hasn't quite gotten the the amount of of recognition that it deserves so the platform is going to be the i think the the hard component that's the that's the tough one cuz i mean and i think to be fair i think a lot of things do ultimately need a server somewhere so peer to peer can probably only go so far so at some point that that hardware component's probably going to be written off but that source code we have licenses for that and then the data the data that that you should own you do technically own but but how practical is it how pragmatic is it for you to say that yes i own that data because oh here's the here's a backup copy of it that i that i haven't even had to maintain myself it just has been happening for me that sort of thing so i think that's an important uh, component as well and sort of like ensuring that we're not getting into too much of a, a centralized model where 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 we 
you know, all, all of the things go to one place and, and, and then we're just counting on that one place existing until, until we get fair warning that it's not going to exist. And then we can all scramble to get our stuff out of it. But that assumes that we get fair warning and so on. So I think, I think some design choices that we need to make and, and really thinking about what we're willing to, to use and ultimately what we're willing to lose, I think is an important thing for the open source community to, 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 to ponder. And since we individually are not a community, we are just individuals. I think ultimately it it comes down to sort of our own choices, the choices that we make. What, what are we willing to use? What are we willing to not use? And I think there's a big spectrum there. And I mean, at least for me, I know in my life, it's a pretty broad range of what I'm willing to accept from online services, depending on what sort of segment of my life they're, they're intended for. Certainly my actual personal everyday goings-ons isn't really on the cloud, but stuff that I do just for fun, that can be on the cloud. I don't care because if that goes away, then that's okay. I just don't, that's not a source of fun for me anymore. That's gone. But somewhere else will will come up and I'll have fun there instead. So that sort of thing do- doesn't really matter. So there, there's, yeah, different levels. I mean, certainly, and then for financial stuff, that's a completely different realm of, of concern. So I think we all have to think about that sort of thing. We all have to figure out our limits and our, our boundaries for that. And that's important. And I think the more that as an open source community, we, we recognize that and, and we, we bring it up to people and sort of maybe share with people some of those determining factors, I think that could be a, an actual service to people. I mean, I'm not saying you have to like talk to everyone at the grocery store about it. I'm just saying like some people don't think about computing this hard. And so if as an open source advocate or enthusiast, you are able to to deliver a maybe a different angle of something to someone, shed some light on something from a different perspective, that could be useful. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. It depends on who you're talking to, probably. But certainly some people, they just don't think about that sort of thing. To them, the internet is the internet. And, and, and it's just, hopefully nothing bad happens there. Sometimes telling people, Hey, you can have different strategies for that. Like that's a real, that's a moment of enlightenment for this, for some people. I mean, other people just don't listen and they don't care. And there's, you know, that's, that's that. But some people just haven't ever thought about it that hard. And that the concept of having maybe a different, a different email address for, for this purpose or a different a different username for that purpose or not entering their personal information into that website. Like all of that stuff is really, that's, oh, that's really great information. So I think as open source enthusiasts, I think it's, it's significant. There's some knowledge there that I think a lot of us have that can benefit others. And I think if, if certainly if we're designing systems or software, then these are really important matters to keep in mind as well, especially the more and more people start looking into their internet browser for for everyday purposes, I think the more that we can bring open source to that, the better. That's all I have to say about services and the cloud. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name is Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
all over. I only came in to tell you goodbye. 